Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There are moments in our life when we are shaped through adversity and challenge. Propelled through turbulent change, we're presented with an opportunity to take wings and soar from a dark place to one of light. I'm Leslie Salem, founder of Over the Bloody Moon, on a mission to take the muddle out of menopause and show the positive side to this time of life. At Over the Bloody Moon, we believe in three T's to help us thrive, a team, tools, and a tribe. In our second series of The Changemakers, we invite you to meet clinicians and specialists who share their experience and knowledge to help you manage your menopause. Come join us for the flight. Today's show is called Demystifying Menopause. You're not alone if you didn't know that natural menopause has stages and that the hormone changes experienced in each will affect people in different ways. To help us understand the prism of menopause is hormone health specialist Maisie Hill, author of Period Power and her latest book, Perimenopause Power. Maisie is a highly qualified and sought after specialist in menstrual and women's health. As founder of the Flow Collective, she's worked with clients for over 15 years across all aspects of hormone related issues. Maisie, it's lovely to have you back. I can't believe how time's flown and you've managed to fit in another book, which is Perimenopause Power. And it is an absolute encyclopedia. And it's one of those things that you can keep returning to. And obviously, I know a fair bit. And I always, that's what I love about reading your content, Maisie, is there's always new stuff to learn. Well, this is the thing, I think, is because really particularly when we're talking about perimenopause, you know, hormones just affect everything. We've got hormone receptors throughout our bodies. So when the hormonal landscape starts to shift in perimenopause and then again in postmenopause, it impacts us on so many levels. And I think that's why this really is a speciality, you know, in the same way that we think about like, the childbirth year, pregnancy and postpartum, you know, there's a whole field of medicine dedicated to that. And really the same should be happening for perimenopause and postmenopause because it affects us on so many levels, which is why we can keep returning to it and why we need to go in more in depth in certain areas and really look at all the ways it impacts us. We're so lucky to have you today. And so what we're going to be squeezing out of you really is for the listeners to understand, you know, there is no one size fits all. We're all unique beings. So I'd like to just kick off by talking about the different types of menopause. What what are they? Yeah, well, there's a few. So the big one that we are most familiar with is what we would call natural menopause, which happens as a result of the aging process. There's a natural dwindling of ovarian hormones And in the UK, the average age for that to happen is 51. Now, perimenopause is the process of hormonal change that happens in the run up to our period stopping. But there's also other types, you know, of menopause too, including induced menopause. So this can happen usually as a result of medical treatment of some kind, usually to do with another reproductive health issue. So, for instance, if you have 
quite troublesome fibroids and you have some surgery coming up, you might be placed on types of medication that instigate temporary menopause in order to shrink the size of the fibroid to make that surgical procedure go about easier. And it's the same with some people with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is described as an extreme form of PMS. They might take a similar medication to do the same. So you can have this temporary state. You can also have surgical menopause. So if your ovaries are removed, you will immediately go into a menopausal state. It can also happen if you have your uterus removed as a hysterectomy, but you still have your ovaries there. Just the removal of the uterus can sometimes impact the ovaries. And then we have early menopause, which is if you're in the 40 to 45 year range and that happens to like five percent of us and then there's premature menopause which is if you're under the age of 40 which is estimated to be one percent so there's variance and I suppose the main message is it can happen at any age really and you're right to say it is a process you know sometimes like if you have a surgical procedure it can happen instantly but Often this is an ongoing process and our experience of it shifts throughout that process and it definitely isn't one size fits all, as you say. Yeah, because, you know, in the media still, you know, the images of usually a 70-year-old woman (laughs) who's well post-menopause. And I think it's important to kind of talk about those differences and celebrate the diversity that we have in the menopause community. Yeah, because I don't think it's doing us any favours. I'm all for seeing pictures of older women in mass media. Absolutely. That's that's important. (laughs) But it does kind of perpetuate this idea that this is something that happens when you're older rather than something that could be starting in your late 30s or in your 40s. So it can be confusing when you just have that image of what someone who's postmenopausal is. Mm. And in your experience, is one of those types worse than another? Are people more likely to experience more bothersome aspects with any of those types? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Well, so much is going to be dependent on the individual experience. So I wouldn't want to make sweeping statements here. But I would say that when it's surgical and it literally happens overnight, not only are you recovering from the surgery and whatever the health reasons were for the surgery, but then you're also dealing with the sudden loss of ovarian hormones that is going to be significant. And this is why, as I say in the book, it's really important to have the conversation. Even if you don't plan or don't want to take HRT long term, maybe it's worth considering taking it short term whilst you recover from the surgical procedure and like giving yourself a bit of a window of kind of buffering to make it a bit gentler. And of course, things like premature menopause and ovarian insufficiency, things like that that can happen earlier, that can be really devastating because of its impact on fertility as well. So Mm. there's nuances to it, I would say. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely, it was fascinating reading. I don't know if you've read Helen Kemp and the team's book on surgical menopause, not your typical menopause, but it's 12 women's account of their experiences and it can happen to any of us but this lack of preparation alongside that collision of other things you know happening as well can be really tricky 
We've heard then about natural menopause and within that, the subsections of early and POI induced. So that's really helpful. I'd like to move on now to thinking about menopause as a journey and, you know, the fact that it is a dynamic experience and not enough people, I think, talk about it as a transition, which obviously suggests that it's <laughs> there are things moving and changing for a while. Yes. And that's the thing. I like to think of it as a shifting landscape. This is what the picture looks like now, but we're still moving along the timeline. And then there's another one coming up ahead. So really, we could split it up into stages that often what happens first is progesterone hormone levels start to decline. And that is really happening from, you know, mid 30s onwards. So this is why I think having a conversation and thinking, well, this could be a process that begins around the age of 35 to 40 for you. And maybe progesterone levels start to go down and you start to experience some changes. You know, you might not say you're in perimenopause, but you are on those hormonal fluctuations that lead you there. Mm. On that, Maisie, why then is progesterone not given earlier by itself? Well, this is a very good question. Why isn't it? And I think sometimes it is. You know, I have some clients who've got it usually because they've been able to go private and get a prescription that way. When you think about how someone can be in their 30s and having fertility issues and have low progesterone, but for a long time, it went out of favour as a way to support fertility and you couldn't get it through the NHS because the evidence base that they were leaning on at the time was saying this doesn't make a difference to pregnancy outcome. And then, you know, they've since kind of reversed their position. So it changes a lot. But some of my clients are able to get it and it does make a difference to the experience of the cycle because often when progesterone levels are falling what we get is a shorter cycle because progesterone is like the hormone that holds up the second half of the cycle and when progesterone levels go down that second half of the cycle gets shorter and you also start to see issues like premenstrual spotting anxiety and mood issues because progesterone for most people has this calming soothing effect and it's often it really helps us to sleep well in the mm. second half of the cycle so when it goes you get sleep issues low mood anxiety headaches and migraines and it also causes heavy menstrual bleeding so you get a shorter cycle but you get heavier periods and then you're flooding because progesterone lightens periods. So, you know, that can be the, the beginning of things. Yeah. Night sweats and stuff as well. And then estrogen, because there's this delicate balance between estrogen and progesterone, it's like they're they're on a seesaw. So progesterone goes down and estrogen is suddenly going up. And then you start getting bloating, breast tenderness, rage, irritability, you know, all the things that most of us are very familiar with in this stage of life. So we have that going on. And then what happens is estrogen levels then start to decline. So in the beginning of perimenopause, you might have shorter, more frequent cycles. And then your periods start to become more spaced out and you start to get the symptoms of low estrogen, like vaginal dryness, joint pain, changes to your skin, changes to the body composition, cognitive decline. I mean, it sounds fantastic, doesn't it? <laughs> it's worth saying, though, that not everyone experiences everything at the same time. And No, because uh, this could be know, spread out over 15 yeah. years. It's not yeah. like one month you've got this, the next month you've got that. 
But this is why starting these conversations earlier and particularly like involving your GP and other medical professionals sooner rather than later is best because the great news is that all of these things can be improved. But we want to be noticing when they're occurring and taking action, not as so many of us do think, you know, it's only a few days a month or we're in the habit of prioritising other things and other people and deprioritising our needs and particularly our health. So it's just important, I feel, to start that conversation, start exploring what options are available to you and really getting the ball rolling there rather than let this stuff just accumulate because then that's when we run into trouble. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, life is different. We've got a lot more demands on us. Life is busier, more opportunities in the workplace. And so we're working our bodies and minds a lot harder. Let's talk as well about menopause, how that differs from your knowledge around culture and ethnicity and any other factors. Oh, so this is much debated. It's one of those areas of science where there's one study that says this and then a little bit later another study says that. There are variations like at the time when you will go through menopause, you know, and that can sway by a few years in either direction, depending on your ethnicity or the country that you live in. And I think this is an area that we haven't reached a point where there's clarity on that. And it's the same with the age at which you start having your first periods. Does that relate to the time when you will go through menopause? If you start your periods earlier, will menopause happen earlier? I always get the question, is there a link between my mum going through menopause and the type of menopause she had? This is more of a personal opinion, I would say, rather than anything evidence-based. I would say yes. And when we're talking about premature menopause and ovarian insufficiency and, you know, that side of things, then you definitely want to know if that was something that your mum experienced. And this is why speaking to our family members and your mum about what their experience of getting their first periods were like, what what their pregnancies, births, postpartums were like, what perimenopause was like for them. But Nature nurture, I'm sure that comes into play as well. But I do suspect there's kind of some genetic things going on as well that can Mm. contribute to our experience. It doesn't have to be the be all and end all, but I think contribute is the word. Yeah. So we're talking about stages and you have so far been describing within perimenopause that shift from progesterone and then oestrogen. So that's perimenopause. Then what happens Yeah. And then in that final phase where your periods become more far apart, you ovulate less frequently, and then eventually you have a 12 month period from when your last menstrual period is to when you officially go through menopause, which is just one day, and then you're postmenopausal. So really, it's a continuation of that, of being in a low oestrogen state. So the ovaries have stopped producing oestradiol, which is the main form of oestrogen that we experience through the menstrual cycle. But importantly, the ovaries do still produce hormones. So they do still produce androgens, which is like your testosterone, androstenedione. Mm. But what's important about these androgen hormones is that 
estrogen in another form can be converted from those hormones. So the ovaries are still important. They still serve a purpose. And we produce estrogen through this conversion technique that the body does in other parts of the body as well that aren't to do with the ovaries. Okay. And then post-menopause, what's going on then in terms of if people are being bothered by hot flushes and things, when could one expect that to stop? So this really varies. It can go on for some time. Some people, I think, can be experiencing it still 12 years after going through menopause. Mm, 10% apparently. So, you know, it really can go on for some time. Understandably, when we're talking about perimenopause and postmenopause, we focus on the symptoms and symptom management. And that is really important. But what I am really keen to encourage people is to consider things beyond the symptoms that you might be experiencing at that time and to be thinking ahead to the postmenopausal years because we're there for decades in postmenopause in that low estrogen state. And this is why it is this window of opportunity to really look at our life, look at our health and improve things because this is when our risk of cardiovascular disease goes up bone health is impacted, the risk of osteoporosis goes up. And then, you know, we can think about like neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's too, because they are all impacted by hormones and specifically estrogen a lot of the time. So as well as thinking about managing things like hot flushes, we also want to think about, well, this is low estrogen and it's going to be having an impact on things that maybe we're not seeing expressed as symptoms just yet. But we want to be making decisions in consideration of what's going to be coming up. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, HRT? Because we're now thankfully getting to the stage where there's a lot better information. And also the type of HRT is kind of really moved on as well. But we're moving away from the fear, I suppose, around breast cancer. I don't know about you. I sort of feel that there's going to be a real shift and sort of a generation that will be on HRT a lot longer whilst we kind of, you know, want to keep everything in good health. I hope so. I really hope so. Because, you know, what happened with HRT 20 years ago, or the beginning, because it's not like it just happened once, it's just continued since then. Yeah. All those scary headlines about it, doubling your risk of breast cancer, doubling your risk of heart disease, that caused, in my opinion, a public health crisis. Because women just stopped taking it overnight. Doctors were scared to prescribe it, even to the women that did still want it. And like, we've lived in the consequence of that ever since. But Things are shifting and that information, you know, we are getting out there and, you know, try to put everyone's minds at ease around this because I just feel it's so essential to be considering it as a fantastic option for living the rest of your life. Absolutely. So we've spoken about oestrogen and the impact that that has had. Can you talk a little bit about the other hormones like progesterone, testosterone, etc., and how they might impact in perimenopause? Yeah. So as I said, the really key thing that I see a lot of people talking about is that suddenly their periods have got really heavy and they're kind of unable to manage the blood loss that they're experiencing. And then, you know, they're experiencing anemia as well because of the blood loss. And that's really a crap cycle to be in because anemia also causes more blood loss. So it's important to address that as soon as possible. 
So, you know, progesterone is available as HRT and it can really help with sleep. You know, there's a reason they tell you to take it at night rather than during the day. But it is important to bring that in, especially when we're talking about HRT, because of that balance between the two hormones, particularly when we're thinking about what's going on with the uterus and protecting against a condition called endometrial hyperplasia, that progesterone is really important. But it can also help with, you know, night sweats and breast health and bone health. So it's important to consider progesterone because I think the focus tends to just be on estrogen. And then testosterone is important for energy, motivation, sexual desire, and it's bloody hard to get as HRT in the UK. Yeah. (laughs) Men would be able to get it. I think especially when it comes to sexual desire, it's just seen as a taboo thing for, for women. So it is important, and this is why having an ongoing conversation with your GP or whoever's prescribing HRT to you is that we're looking at all of these hormones and their influence and do things need to be adjusted? Most likely they will as you move through the landscape. Mm -hmm. And just on testosterone, I mean, as well as libido, it also is quite important, isn't it, in terms of fatigue and managing energy and mood. So Although it's not available on the NHS at the moment, you can get it off licence. Although you do have to go and have the blood tests to check that you're eligible. Yeah, and things are shifting. There's been a lot of recent campaigning around testosterone and trying to make that more available. But this is why you might need to see a menopause specialist or go to a menopause clinic on the NHS and make your case. So we've spoken about oestrogen progesterone, testosterone, any other biggies when it comes to perimenopause that we should just be aware of? Yeah, well, the big one here is cortisol and the impact of stress and stress hormones. For so long, there's been this debate about does stress impact the cycle? Does stress impact the hormones? And I would say some of mainstream medicine has argued, no, stress doesn't impact things. And then, you know, here we are in a pandemic stress levels through the roof and lo and behold everyone's cycles have gone absolutely haywire and many people have struggled to identify are they in perimenopause or are they just under the influence of stress and the impact on the cycle but stress does influence what's going on with our sex hormones and it can make for instance the hormone receptors to progesterone it can block those up. So even if you have got circulating progesterone, it can't lock into its receptor site and have an impact. And cortisol also has an influence on what's going on with estrogen too. It can impact so many things. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, this is often a stage of life where we are stretched. When you lose hormones and when you stop producing them at the level that you're used to, something I've really noticed is that women have less resilience. And I really think about how hormones give us resilience. You know, they get a bad rap, but they do increase resilience. And oestrogen in particular increases resilience and our capacity to deal with life's challenges. Progesterone also helps to soothe and to calm us. So we have to be considering things from that side, like what is your resilience level like? And do you feel equipped to deal with life's challenges? Stress is just such a biggie, isn't it? And it exacerbates so many different aspects of perimenopause, you know, hot flushes, 
poor sleep, even the way that we cope with pain. So beyond HRT, if you were to summarise some other menopause pillars of self-care, what would you say people should be thinking about and tweaking? I think, you know, doing something, being outside, being in community, particularly after the last year we've had, you know, finding your support team, whether that's a GP who understands, can listen and can give you the treatment options that should be available to you. Is it a friend who you can call and say, I just need to go for a stomp around? Are you up for a chat? Speaking to family members, just, I think, increasing the conversation and having the support that you need and that might be an acupuncturist nutritional therapist you know all of these types of things absolutely have their place and can be used alongside HRT and other forms of medication you know sleep if you're not sleeping everything else suffers and there are so many ways that you can support sleep and usually once someone's sleeping better everything else starts to improve and it's like you're laying the foundation for everything else that follows and you know just the basics like moving your body in ways that feel good to you doing things that nourish you saying no having good boundaries probably easing up on alcohol because that usually starts to cause a lot of dysregulation going on and just switching to thinking about pleasure and desire and the things that we love doing that's really important. And talking of alcohol, of course, nutrition as well plays such an important part. Continuing on our theme of uniqueness and the menopause experience, and I know that everyone is different, but there are also other things going on. So it's not that just people are having menopause in isolation. They might already have or alongside or it might even trigger certain conditions. So let's just cover, for example, a person that is going through insulin resistance Thinking about self-care and some of those pillars that you've just mentioned, what are the things that they have to be particularly careful about through perimenopause? You know, insulin resistance, of course, we have to look at what's going on in terms of diet and stabilising blood sugar and, you know, really looking at what's going on hormonally there in terms of insulin. And, you know, this is where eating regularly, eating enough, but eating things that are like nutrient dense and going to be supportive to overall health, decreasing sugar intake, looking at alcohol and things as well, because alcohol just gets converted into sugar and, you know, causes issues there. You know, this is, again, to return to the importance of sleep. If you're not sleeping well, you wake up tired and then you're usually more likely to survive on caffeine and sugar for that day because your body's just like, oh, I need energy. I need things that I can quickly convert into sugar. So that's when you go for pastries and sugar and, you know, things that are going to kind of prop you up. You know, calories aren't a problem. I want to emphasize that, but it's where are you getting the calories from? Is it from a brownie and a coffee because you're like, oh my God, I've got to get through my day? Completely understandable, but actually what you need is some protein, some fat and some veggies, and that's what's going to help you. So, you know, in perimenopause is a time when we are more likely to develop insulin resistance. And particularly if you're someone who has polycystic ovarian syndrome, because there's that correlation between the two conditions. So I would say this is something for us to all be aware of. And particularly if you're someone who's bothered by the idea of chin hairs, then you want to be thinking about insulin resistance, because one of the things that can happen is you get more hairs on your chin when you're insulin resistant. And moving your body is what this is where it comes down to moving the body. But again, for so many people, exercise 
we often do things from restriction and punishment and shame and thinking that we're not good enough as we are and we have to change that somehow, that's not the place to be doing things from. Like, this is a time in life to really reframe things and think about, like, what feels good to your body? What is going to help you, like, with resistance training, strength training? That's so good for bone health, so good for conditions like insulin resistance and just helps us to produce all those happy hormones that are going to help us to feel good and develop resilience. Everything is so connected, isn't it? The mind and the body. And the great thing about menopause is it gives you that opportunity to look at life sort of holistically. And when you make a change in one area, it often can impact and lead and encourage you in something else. Yeah, completely. I've just hired a personal trainer recently. My friend and I are starting to work out together every Saturday morning. And, you know, the shifts that have come from that. So often that's all you need to do is change one thing focus on that and then you get these kind of byproducts as a result of focusing on that one thing and I think that makes things much more accessible because often we think well right I've got to improve my health and we come up with this perfectionist fantasy of all the things that we should do in order to improve our health and like actually let's just focus on one thing. So true because we can sort of stumble if we run too fast and do too many things makes us feel overwhelmed. Brilliant well Maisie as usual I could kind of you know spend hours chatting we haven't got through half the things but so interesting. So you know we've spoken today about the different variances and there are of course even more that we haven't you know covered. What would you like to leave the listeners with in terms of a message today? Mm. Well, obviously the name of the book, Perimenopause Power. And, you know, when we talk about the range of symptoms, it can feel like actually a very disempowering time. But what I want everyone to understand and realise is that it is a powerful time. It's a powerful time to make decisions about your life and about your health. It is a window of opportunity. That is literally how the scientific literature refers to it. And, you know, just approaching things that way is going to make your experience far more positive. So that would be the key thing for me. I've got an image now of sort of like, you know, surfing the wave, isn't it? Sort of, you know, the wave's coming, so you might as well jump on it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Maisie. It's been great catching up and looking forward to when we next connect. Me too. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 